my name's Justin McClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we continue our Australian journey with George Miller. And by the way, I've practiced method podcasting by just coming back from Australia and suffering the worst jet lag of my life. <laughs> Wait, how long was the Australia trip again? I was there for uh, just just a shade under three weeks, and I, I got back, and uh, today, you, I'll tell you what happened. This is not interesting. Uh, I was up until 5 a.m. last night trying to get to sleep, woke up at noon, watched Happy Feet for this <laughs> podcast, yep. went immediately back to sleep, and now here I am in the, in the evening with, with Justin. Listen, people have been complaining. We jumped too quick into the podcast. We have to do more of that like podcast banter for 10 to 15 minutes before we get into the topic at hand. I also want people to understand my headspace over the last couple of days. It's been sleeping, being tired, and watching the films of George Miller. <laughs> yes. Well, the good thing about George Miller is that he is a very direct filmmaker in that the kind of subjects that he tackles, he does them in a stylish, forward-facing way. So it's not like you have to wrestle with the kind of themes or content of the films that you watched. Okay, I'm going to say something off the top. Hopefully what I say will be smarter than this going forward. But I can't make that promise. No. I'm going to call him the Sam Raimi of Australia because, oh. because he's got a franchise that you associate very strongly with him. Uh, that has gone through this big evolution over the years that started as one thing, turned into another thing, but all of the films have this very distinctive, explosive style. And then beyond that, he's got a lot of other movies that you look at his filmography and you say, oh, wait, he made that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow, he was the second unit director on Dead Calm, the uh, Nicole Kidman, Billy Zane film. But if you watch that film... You can instantly tell which scenes George Miller directed. Is there a wild crash zoom into someone's face? Indeed there is. But George Miller, we think of him for the Mad Max movies, also the director of Lorenzo's Oil, Babe, Pig in the City, Happy Feet, The Witches of Eastwick, other films that you've forgotten he directed. He's a director as well that I feel, you know, when I think about him, it's usually in the context of he didn't do that much stuff. Which is not 100% true, you just mentioned all the movies. But because Mad Max tends to dominate his filmography as much as it does, that the others kind of fall a little bit by the wayside. Well, he works on a huge scale. There are high-profile movies that he didn't direct. You remember back in 2004, he was supposed to do a version of Mad Max Fury Road with Mel Gibson, and mm -hmm. it fell apart. And then, 2008, he was supposed to do a Justice League movie that collapsed because of the writer's strike. Do you remember the story that the guy who was playing Superman in that movie, who you haven't heard of, he didn't become a star, tragically, like, he was on his way to the airport to film that oh, movie. Oh, that's brutal. When the plug was pulled. That's how close they got. Uh, George Miller, as a director, you would say he almost has Terry Gilliam-like luck when it comes to making movies. People love George Miller. I think when we talk about George Miller and say that we love George Miller, we're mostly thinking about the Mad Max movies. I know that we both explored a little bit uh, elsewhere in the filmography this week and there's good stuff there's less good stuff I think what I'm interested in this episode is trying to decipher what is the artistic personality that unites all of this stuff we're going to talk about a bunch of the non-Mad Max movies that George Miller made and you'll find people who will go to bat for stuff like Lorenzo's Oil or uh, Witches of Eastwick I don't think you will find these people on this podcast. Oh, I haven't seen Lorenzo's Oil. Possibly it's great. Do you want to hear Nick Nolte do the cartooniest Italian accent you have ever heard? What's the story behind Mad Max before we get to that? Well, Mad Max, it has that 
great young filmmaker, doesn't have as many resources as he would want. In the case of George Miller, he's also someone who studied to be a doctor. That is kind of part of his background. And he decided, oh, you know, I made this short film and it became popular. Let's move it with my producing partner and best friend, Byron Kennedy, and let's make a feature film out of it. And the result was Mad Max. And before we talk about the film, we should mention it was a gigantic hit as a movie. It made so much money. $100 million worldwide. And I feel like watching the movie now, it lives in the shadow of The Road Warrior. Though you will uh, hear people say, well, I prefer Mad Max to The Road Warrior because it has, you know, a different texture. Well, the first Mad Max, it's easy for me to forget what a different beast it is than the three that came after. I mean, one of the reasons why it was such a huge hit in 1979 is it feels part of that wave of movies, you know, Death Wish or Walking Tall, those like revenge movies of the 70s. What's wild about rewatching Mad Max is like if it didn't have that title and you didn't know that Mel Gibson starred in like the other ones, you're like, oh, this guy's the star of the movie because he like disappears from the narrative for massive chunks of that film. That's true. This movie also takes place at a different like point in the dystopia as the later ones. Like society has just started to break down. Wait, wait, wait. It's not modern day Australia. I thought it was. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it basically is modern day Australia. You know, there's some political and social unrest because of the oil shortages, et cetera, et cetera. Gangs of marauders and hooligans are taking over the streets. It feels like an extension of those ideas of like the biker pictures just taken to a stylized extreme that George Miller, when he, he's at his best, makes his strength. Or the vigilante movies like mm -hmm. Death Wish or Walking Tall, where it's like our cities are being overcome by these these marauding hoodlums. Rewatching Mad Max this time, I was taken aback at how weird the movie is. Like the world of Mad Max, you know, in The Road Warrior or Beyond Thunderdome, you, we can think of the stylistic conceits that are present, like people wandering the wastelands are wearing a football equipment. leather, S&M. S&M stuff. Yeah. But like in Mad Max, you'll have a conversation happening. And then at the end, one of the person will walk away and put on a kendo outfit for no specific reason. We're introduced to Mad Max's wife wailing on a saxophone as the camera just pans back away from it. But I mean, the plot is pretty simple. Max played by a 21-year-old at the time of filming. And he looks Gibson. like it. He looks like a big old baby. Baby-faced. Uh, he is, you know, part of law enforcement taking on these gangs. He goes on a getaway with his wife. He's having trouble in his job. He thinks only the badge is separating him from the criminals. And then when his wife and daughter are killed, he gets rid of the badge, basically. So from that plot synopsis, I think you would think it's a different movie because that, like, going on a trip and his wife and daughter get killed happened, like, an hour 20 into the movie there is a lot of um digressions that you feel are the results of a troubled production and also a first-time filmmaker where you will have asides like you have the villain played by the very charismatic uh hugh keys uh burn who would come back as the main uh, bad guy in fury road as kind of like the leader of the bikers but like he and max barely interact until the end of the movie and so it's all these kind of like little details that clearly made an impact on the audience that were watching it and the film starts with just a bonkers action chase scene that is almost like it's a mad 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 world at its like top level and it never even tries to get back there well the beginning and the ending of this movie i guess are kind of what made the movie a hit mm -hmm. right like some of the vehicular stunts are incredible and the thing that everyone says about 
this movie is you can tell they only had one take to do it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a movie that cost, what, $300,000 or something? Yeah, 500000 I think. Yeah. And, you know, you watch some of these scenes, like the famous one where there's a motorcyclist who flips his bike and he gets smacked on the back of the head by his bike. But, you know, it's funny, compared to The Road Warrior or Fury Road, which are these incredibly propulsive, just like straight line movies, very simply structured movies, this one is kind of all over the place. It's, uh, you know, the new cinema, Will, you know, we can go Easy Rider on a way. (laughs) Hey, man, it made as big of a financial impact as Easy Rider, so. It's a little hard for me to put myself in the headspace of what was so impactful about this movie, though, apart from so many other, like, Ozploitation Mm -hmm. movies. Can you give me a little bit more insight into this? Do you have any? I have have no idea. Like, I watch this movie and I go, like, what was that, like? magic that really connected with people maybe because we're so mired in the tropes of post-apocalyptic kind of stuff that here they're being introduced and they feel much fresher than anything that had happened there but then again when i think of like all the italian wave or even the american wave that were doing post-apocalyptic stuff they're taking from the road warrior not specifically mad max i would imagine that the international audiences there was a sort of otherworldly australianness to this Mm -hmm. film like the landscapes of the movie i mean Miller is basically just shooting against the backdrop of of Australia, which is this very wide open, largely empty country. And there's something about that. You know, he doesn't have to do much to make it look, to torque it and make it look post-apocalyptic. That on top of, you know, the extraordinary, you know, the the high points of this movie are so extraordinary. And I think that, like, when people watch it now, there is, like, a scruffiness compared to everything that came afterwards that is very appealing because it's these young filmmakers cutting their teeth, making this movie, just trying to get enough to feature length. And it clicked at the moment that it came out, and George Miller was then able to push his vision forward forward and make something more totemic like the road warrior i mean the road warrior come on what do you say iconic now i remember when i was a kid and i watched it i was like yeah it's good but I expected more. Okay. You know what I mean? Okay. You know what's so fucked up? Yeah. I had the same feeling when I saw this as a kid. Yeah, and it's like, and now, I think, and now I look at it, yeah. this is only the second time I'd seen this movie. And is it because you had that feeling in your mind? Of well, like, it had been so built up, Yeah, you know? Because I think when you're like aliens, kid, and you're like, oh, this delivers what I expect. And we, when you watch Road Warrior, it's like, and I remember even systematically when I was like, mm, this was a film I saw very early on, probably eight years old. Like, there's... You know, a car chase at the beginning, a car chase at the end. That's what I remember. There's a lot of walking through the desert, people talking. But now I'm like, just give it to me. I like it all. I do think when you're a kid, the degree of difficulty of some of what Miller and his team accomplished Mm -hmm. doesn't quite hit you. I mean, now you look at the Road Warrior, those scenes at the end where like the camera is careening through the sky as you're seeing this massive vista of all these different cars and trucks chasing each other. It's mind boggling. When you watch something like Mad Max, which is very disjointed in its presentation. And then you watch The Road Warrior, which is so pure, everything seems exact. And while it was, again, another difficult production, it's one where like all the pieces lock into place and you can't even imagine any other way because this is how it's supposed to play out. Something about this film's post-apocalyptic, you know, like the dystopia of this film. The dystopia of this film really lights up my imagination, I think because it feels sketchy and unfinished. Mm -hmm. Like it feels like, All these little communities have, you know, formed like bacteria, basically, according to no rules. We talked about the way they dress. There's this like weird like, yeah, football gear meets leather S&M aesthetic that a lot of these things have. These people have like like why, you know, all these places, all these people have evolved to no known rules. Mm -hmm. But you also feel because George Miller gets so involved in these worlds 
that there's almost a logic behind these choices that he's doing. You can imagine something beyond it. Yes. And like you, you don't have access to what's beyond it. Nobody has access to what be what's beyond it. But you as the audience fill in the blanks of that. Like I'm reminded of in A New Hope, you know, when you see the the, the bar in that for in that first Star Wars mm-hmm. movie and you think, oh, all these creatures are part of their own like universe. Because when you think of the road warrior, you kind of break it down in your mind. All you really have is Mad Max wandering the roads. And then there's the base of the people where they get the oil. And that's it. There's nothing else in the movie. Mm-hmm. But it's so much bigger because of the way George Miller constructs it. If you compare it to Italian post-apocalyptic films, a lot of them that I like, a lot of them that have a lot of stuff in them, they pale in imitation because there isn't that kind of control over this material. If you break down what actually happens in the climax of uh, The Road Warrior, like Max it barely gets out of the driver's seat, but it doesn't matter because it's so impactful. It's always in motion that there's a reason it is a classic and always will be. The complexity, the degree of difficulty is considerable of these action scenes and the dystopian world, but there's also an incredible simplicity to it. The story and the characterizations are bare bones. You don't get any more of Max, either in the way he's written or in Mel Gibson's performance, than you need. And there's something evocative about that. I feel, having watched so many George Miller films to do this episode, that he is always at his strengths when he has a very solid, straightforward through line that he can build upon and add all those little details. When he has to tell a bigger story, he gets kind of like all over the place in the way that he tries to approach it, whether it be something like Lorenzo's Oil or Witches of Eastwick. But when something in The Road Warrior, where everything is so totemic, or something even like Fury Road, which is kind of building off of that, that's where he's at his strengths. Or even, for example, something like the segment in The Twilight Zone that he does with John Lithgow. I love that segment of The Twilight Zone. It's probably the best one of the whole movie. I like the Dante one, but his but his is good. I like the ideas and the execution of the Dante one, but I find that George Miller's like, he takes that concept and how do you elevate a William Shatner performance? <laughs> it's like you get John Lithgow and you get George Miller just absolutely off his rocker in that film. But by the way, everything I said about The Road Warrior applies doubly to Fury Road because that's another movie where, yeah, it builds on the universe, expands the universe, shows you more corners of the universe, and is also full of so many like strange and, and evocative little details like you know, in the bad guys, there's that guy who's like playing the chain to playing the guitar to like, you know, hype, hyping up the bad guys. Like that's such a bizarre, you know, little flourish. But then also it's an incredibly simple, like, again, Tom Hardy's performance, Charlize Theron's performance, their characters, you get so little from them except what you need. I, I think that the Fury Road is probably my favorite of all the Mad Max movies because it feels like everything that he had been working through the first three, even beyond Thunderdome, which is a very compromised production because his producing partner passed away and it really kind of d- devastated him. So he only partly directed that picture. But in Fury Road, you have this movie that's been building up in him for decades and he suddenly is able to unleash it. And I, I don't remember if we talked about this, but you know... Fury Road was shut down before they were done and they had to do a work print that didn't have the beginning or the end and Warner Brothers was like we can release this and they were like no please let us shoot an explanation of why Max is on the car like in one version of the movie it just started with Max like chained up on the car no explanation of how he got there <laughs> but I think also what's really good about Fury Road and it's getting back to where we talked about the Road Warrior which is like nothing is really explained and I think that is to the strengths of the film Max is haunted by like you know something that happened in his life involving a little girl and you can read the comics if you want an explanation of that but in the movie it doesn't and you don't need it because it's so pure and emotional and that's why I like Fury Road 
the most as well is the one that had the most present emotional through line, especially near the end. I think it succeeds in reaching those points because it's one where Max, played by Tom Hardy, gets someone to bounce off of. Because in all those three other ones, he doesn't really have someone to his level of strength or despair. And with Furiosa, the character is able to do that. Yeah, with Road Warrior and Fury Road, I like that they're these they're both like paradoxically maximalist and minimalist. Mm-hmm. They're they're maximalist in the sort of Mad Max stars in it. Yeah, well, <laughs> they're max, uh, uh, very, very funny. They're maximalist. They're over the top in their aesthetic and mm. in their world building, but they're minimalist in like the explanation and in like, you know, in Fury Road, it would have been so easy to like build a love story between yes. Max and Furiosa, but like they barely have personalities except what's expressed through like the actor's faces. Or like stop the movie and have a flashback explaining what happened to Max or Furiosa. And the film has no interest in doing that. Like every- it has respect for the characters to not force them to do that every time i watch the movie i always notice like little details that i miss of like you know stuff that's on their car or things that are done like there's that one fight scene where they're like fighting and they're like chained up it's such a complicated fight scene where it's uh max is chained up to another guy who's then chained to a door and then they fighting Furiosa, who keeps going for guns while the other women are also doing something. And he somehow is able to make it work. What's great about that fight scene is it looks weird, too, because they, like, stepped up the frame weight. So it looks a little bit fast forward. But George Miller allows that to work within the entirety of that he's building. If removed from that without the context, like, there's scenes from Mad Max where it's like, that is an interesting choice. Like... The fact that, you know, night is all blue in the movie, illuminated by pockets of orange. And that's awesome. And that is George Miller, like, doing what he does perfectly. So, uh, did you watch Lorenzo's Oil? I did watch Lorenzo's Oil. What, what, if, what is it? I'm sorry. So, it is the real-life story of a young boy who gets a debilitating disease that essentially eats away at, like, a protection for your brain. So you lose motor functions, you actually lose your sight. And it's such a rare disease that there's not that much data on it. And so his... Okay, so George Miller, a medical doctor yep. uh, in, a, in a previous life. And he approaches it very interestingly in the sense that he's able to make the movie kind of about, like, doctors have to follow certain procedures, even if it can't help immediately the people that need the help and can only help people afterwards due to the checks and balances they need to do. Do you see the man who made Mad Max? Absolutely. Lorenzo's oil is bonkers. It's basically like an opera. Like the kid is like, (gasps) (laughs) Sarandon wears like Fritz Lang silent era makeup for half the movie. (laughs) She looks like a monster in the picture. And yeah, the thing about the film though, it, it, it is so heightened but it's also, I feel, kind of like all over the place because it has to span such a long period of time. And I don't know if it works for me emotionally, but you can absolutely see George Miller there. I remember reading an interview with him where he talked about like, I want this to be a drama that is visually interesting in a way that these dramas aren't usually. And what's funny about the movie is for people who haven't seen it, and would have no interest in seeing it because it was sold by, you know, the studio as one of those boring dramas. You see, like, the cover is, like, them holding their child. When the movie itself... It's like Sophie's Choice or something. That's not what it is. It is so elevated. Now, for me, it didn't work because the tonal shifts 
are so bonkers. Like there's a shot of the kid like screaming and it's like a low angle. You just see his hand out like he's a monster, like, oh, they're trying to hold him back. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but yeah, he he went all out. And that film was a financial failure. It didn't do very well for George Miller. Well, speaking of going all out, there's The Witches of Eastwick with Jack, <sighs> Jack Nicholson, which I had somehow never seen until this week. I'm very surprised you'd never seen that one. I know. You know, I want- <laughs> You're such a big John Updike fan. <laughs> yeah. I think I that was one that I kind of wanted to see when I was a kid because uh, the Joker himself was in it, but I think it was rated R. And then as an adult, I always had something better to watch. I'm going to say, you know, I love Jack. Badly cast in this movie. Too old. Well, I mean, the movie sort of makes a joke about how yes. he is not good looking mm-hmm. and how he's kind of kind of a creep. I mean, I know many people will argue with me. I think Jack is so charismatic in this particular role. Not charming, though, which the movie needs. Yes. People are like, that's the argument, you know, Stephen King made against The Shining. Because, you know, Jack is so wacky from the get go. He has nowhere to go. Yeah. I found Jack less compelling than I. I Jack. I'm, I'm talking like I'm Billy Crystal at the Oscars. Oh, no, you can't do this that anymore, Will. Take it <laughs> off. Wash it off your face. You don't want to see my Sammy Davis Jr. impression? <laughs> the jazz man. But I, w- I was less compelled by Jack Nicholson than I expected to be, given that it's like, well, he's he's Jack. He's doing the shtick. Mm-hmm. But I think the movie, The Witches of Eastwick, is so much more simplistic than I expected it to be. It kind of announces what it's going to do in the first five minutes, and then it does those things, and there are no surprises. And it it feels like it ought to have some of that, like, Beetlejuice energy, but was there a single image in this movie that, like, delighted or surprised you? Uh, The woman vomiting cherries, which is pretty disgusting, who then dies of it. That was interesting. Yes. But, you know. This was, again, a compromised production where... uh... George Miller fought a lot with Mr. Giant Spider himself. John Peters. Yes. He had a lot of difficulty with that. What's weird about the film is it feels like a long first act and then a really quick third act. Yes. And I think that's a structural issue with it. Like you can feel the great George Miller version of this, like a special effect extravaganza, but that's not what it is because you feel like things are butting heads about what the movie should be. So for people who haven't seen it, The Witches of Eastwick uh, has three women, Michelle Pfeiffer, Cher, and Susan Sarandon, who, you know, they've they, they kind of had it up to here with men. Yeah, they wish a real man would come along and, and they, jack, if you will. And they accidentally tap into some dark forces, some witch-like forces, by accident, and they create... Well, they, they summon the devil, basically. Mm-hmm. The devil himself. Played by Jack Nicholson. And you could just imagine, you know, audiences in the 80s who love Jack, you know, they're all they're all hyped for anything Jack does. This is this is peak era, you know, right around the time of the Joker Jack. And you can imagine audiences in first run just being like, ah, here he is. He's doing his thing. But I don't know. You could see him do this thing in a million better movies than this. And there's not a lot of variation on what he does. It's not a very subtle performance. It's not not a very nuanced or textured performance. And the women don't really have a kind of like fighting back against him until the last like 15 minutes. That's right. And so it's a bit of a slog to get there because I didn't buy them with Jack other than like under some dark magic. So finally when the turns happen, it's like, oh yeah, Jack's being himself. It's also like, yeah, Jack is representative of like every... You know, he's buddy love, basically. He's every, you know, uh, jerk man who's mildly charismatic. And then at the end, they get their revenge on him, as you know they're going to. And there's also that bizarre scene towards the end where he, like, as he's in the midst of getting his comeuppance, he wanders into that church and delivers that strange monologue about, ah, women. 
Can you believe it? I don't know what that was all about. I feel like that muddied the waters a little bit. Uh, I am always horrified by the giant uh, Jack Nicholson monster that appears at the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, ah, no, this will haunt my nightmares. After The Witch of the Eastwick, which came out in 1987, he went to Lorenzo's Oil, and then he kind of like, you know, bounced around after that. He uh, produced Babe. Uh, I love Babe. And Babe as a producer, was nominated for an Oscar. Mm-hmm. And then he directed Babe 2, Pig in the City, which I which I sort of skimmed through for this episode. People love Babe 2, Pig in the I, City. I like Babe 2, Pig in the City. I like it too. And I like what George Miller's doing because he's completely off the chain. Where like It's the, his gremlins too. Yeah, the city that he's in is like every city. So like every uh, landmark is there. I do miss the kind of simplicity and emotions of the first Babe. Well, you can understand why it wasn't a success because it's just a completely different type mm-hmm. of movie. I love, I, I like both movies on their own terms. The second one being this Fellini-esque. Yeah. Uh, I love the ending where all the animals crash into like a rich snotty ball and there's a guy that has a a huge tower of glasses that he's always like, oh no, is the animals. That's my kind of comedy. Yeah, so there's fun stuff in every scene, fun stuff to look at. You got Mickey Rooney at his most grotesque. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We watch it for the Mickey Rooney episode. That's why I watch Bayesha. <laughs> and there's a reason that it didn't do well, but it also got like a cult audience because there's no other movie like it. And of course, in the 2000s, he has a whole second act coming back as an Academy Award winning children's film director with a movie that I watched today for the first time. First time ever. Never saw this one. Happy Feet. Now, did you have Penguin Fever around the time? Did you watch March of the Penguins? I did watch March of the Penguins. Was it on your beat for like an all-weekly of some sort? No, I was in high school. I just wanted to see it because, you know, I was I was a lame kid who would go see like whatever the big art house movies were. <laughs> I didn't see March of the Penguins, but of course I saw Farce of the Penguins, the parody movie. <laughs> That's how big that film was. If people weren't around or, or weren't conscious, we had Penguin Fever. There was also the Penguins of Madagascar around yeah. that time. Surf's Up? Who can forget that? The mockumentary CGI Penguin movie I starring Sheila Beef. Yeah, I don't know what was in the air because surely Happy Feet was in production long before oh, yeah. March of the Penguins came out. But I believe Happy Feet was also a film that came out due to the fact that George Miller could not get that guard darn Mad Max 4 off the ground. <laughs> like, it just couldn't happen. I mean, what I see of, Ma- of George Miller in this movie are, I mean, the action sequences in the movie are... I can see the same kind of storyboards that would have made these are also the same kind of storyboards that would have made the stuff in Fury Road. There's a scene in, I, do I have to synopsize Happy Feet? Yeah, so... so uh, it's a freaking penguin who, you know, listen, every other penguin in the Antarctic sings. Modern pop songs. That's some older ones. That's right. But this one penguin can't sing. He dances. He's got happy feet. You know what I'm going to say right now? His dancing is lame. (laughs) And it stinks. Well, okay, in fairness to him, he's a penguin. He's in a penguin's body. (laughs) And this is one of my main issues with the film. Don't like looking at these penguins. They have that, like, unreal kind of, like, we don't quite got a handle on this CGI so, but we're trying for photorealism, which is very interesting as a choice. Because if I had to guess how George Miller would do an animated film, it would be hyper stylized, which this is not. I agree. And I, I basically didn't like looking at this movie because I thought that the landscapes we were given were pretty boring. <laughs> yeah, I agree. it's a bunch of penguins against a white backdrop. Mm-hmm. For That's the whole it. thing. And yeah, a little tiring to look at. The the humor of the film. I mean, uh, let's take out our old whipping boy, Robin Williams. <laughs> Robin Williams. I mean, what can, we what, love him. He does. He does a variety of ethnic accents in this movie. <laughs> That's the only way to explain it. I, I, mean, I mean, he does his voices. Taking it as a given that you would never do this today, 
I found Robin Williams' presence sort of charming at times. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, well, in that white nothingness that is this film. Yeah, it's like I, I heard him, and it's like, oh yeah, that's this guy kind of knows comic timing. This guy knows how to do a how to do a funny voice. And I think Robin Williams brings more to this movie than fucking Nicole Kidman does, or no, or, or even Hugh Jackman doing an Elvis voice. Yeah, like I mean, I mean, so I'm coming in semi defense of Robin Williams. I remember seeing this movie when it came out and liking it, and saying, like you, being like, oh, I can see the George Miller. There's this chase sequence. Okay. Okay, this is what I mean. Yeah. When the penguins are, there, there are a couple of penguins who are like sliding down a big hill and there's an avalanche following them. And in that, you can see George Miller. Mm. But in the- It's stru- not that exciting. No, it's not. And in the structure of the film, it's so messy. Like there's no real goals in the film. The penguins are just kind of wandering around hither and dither. And then the ending is so wild where the Elijah Wood penguin gets kidnapped for years he's trapped. He's trapped he, in a zoo. And he loses his mind. Yeah. I like how George Miller does have real people like looking through the glass at him. That's fun. So I definitely also see George Miller, yes, in the... I mean, this is a dystopian post-apocalyptic movie like the Mad Max movies, but the, the dystopia is already here. It's saying that we're destroying the earth and we're being disrespectful to our animal friends. The way it should have ended is that you know, when all the penguins are dancing and they get on the news, they should have all be kidnapped and brought to another zoo. <laughs> That's how the movie would have ended if this actually happened in real life. Well, probably would have made $100 million less. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Happy Feet 2, huge failure. And that's like the Babe 2 pig in the city of George Miller's Happy Feet saga. So I haven't seen Happy Feet 2. Does he do crazy stuff there? He what? does, but it's not as, it's more like, why are you doing this? As opposed to, oh, this is a really interesting di- direction to push it through. But Happy Feet 1, it was a hit. It was best animated picture at the Oscars that year. I so. know. So George Miller has an Oscar. Mm-hmm. Which he should have had for Mad Max Fury Road. I know. Rather than whatever won that year. Some, some, some shit. I don't know. <laughs> Please don't write it and tell us what won. No, we sat there. We watched the Oscars. We cared so was little about- Was it Spotlight? About... Oh, maybe it was Spotlight. It was Spotlight. Oh, yeah. my God. Oh, terrible. But George Miller, like, how would you sum him up? Like, what are his themes? Like, when you talk about him? I do think that there's a thin line between uh, chaos and order, between civilization and anarchy. And oftentimes the line is blurred. I mean, in The Witches of Eastwick, you know, you can see the forces of chaos and disorder and, and evil are easily infiltrate this town and these people. It sounds like in Lorenzo's Oil, the forces of chaos uh, infiltrate this family. The bleak dystopian vision of the Mad Max movies is not too far removed from the bleak dystopian vision of Happy Feet. <laughs> yep. I mean, you know what? I'm giving you a B plus on that. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Pulled it out of nowhere. Yeah, great stuff. And I would also say that something we uh, didn't mention is that George Miller. One of the reasons he didn't make as many movies as he did is that he was a pure independent. Like he really wanted to do the projects that he wanted to do. Like even Lorenzo's Oil, you could be like, oh well, you know, it's just a drama that he wants to do. It is a George Miller film, and him being a doctor informs the material as well. There is, I don't think, any film in his filmography where he comes up as like, oh, I'm just a hired gun. You know, I'm just going to show up, going to shoot this. I'm going to move it he imposes his personality on whatever he does and i think that because he was so kind of forward in the way and his vision that that kept him from making other films because you could easily imagine like george miller directing speed 2 or something like that but it clearly he had no interest in ever doing any of those jobs yeah and i mean a guy who makes three thousand years of longing or babe 2 pig in the city and also makes the mad max movies you're right he could have done those easy commercial jobs but i look at his filmography and i don't see any movies that that he made dishonorably. I would love to know what his Justice League movie would have been. Like, people who read the script said it was 
very weird. <laughs> like Batman got his back broke, uh, you know, a dozen pages into the script, and then he wore like a big exoskeleton for the rest of the movie. <laughs> well, I mean, that happened in a later Batman movie did, too, and, yep. and in the comics, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, like just having to juggle all those superheroes without any proper introductions, what would that have been? <laughs> and also, like that was, I feel like right before you know it was the Marvel takeover. It was yeah. before the Avengers were all where it was a little bit more. I mean, it wasn't the Wild West, but there was. It would have been weirder, and it, he was allowed to. Yes, and it, it wasn't. They weren't planning these things like ten movies in advance mm -hmm. with these interconnected universes. Yeah, but you know, writer strikes are good, so yeah, we definitely yeah. support those. <laughs> even though we, you know, we lost that Justice League, we got an even better one. And right? I mean, and we had to cross the picket line to get in, <laughs> get into the studio today. What people don't know is that these podcasts are heavily scripted, not by us. <laughs> and and let me tell you, those writers who normally write this podcast out there, they are never working in this town again. So. <laughs> So George Miller, great filmmaker. And you know what? He just finished shooting Furiosa, too. I can't wait. What will that be, though? Like, I I'm just kidding. I don't know how you taught the last you one. You can't talk the last one. So does he completely swerve and go in an off the direction? Which I'm like, I don't know about that. Like, yeah. well, we're about to see it. And it's uh, not Charlie Theron, but we got Chris Hemsworth in it, probably doing a very uh, wild performance. That's right. Let's go back beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> yeah. Tina Turner, she's back. <laughs> so, as per usual, you can send us letters at pornsemiclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Elias Brander, and he goes, Hello, Justin and Will. There's an exclamation point. So I just want to make okay. sure I hit that in. I'm a big fan of your podcast, et cetera, et cetera. However, I now have a practical question. I've been convinced by a friend to go watch the Hungarian film Saint Tango at the cinema. Ooh. We've discussed this before, but we can do it again. Apparently, it's a 7.5 hour long Hungarian movie with two intermissions. It seems slightly daunting. How do you prepare yourself mentally so you can enjoy something like that? What are your own experiences with movies that are challenging to such an extreme degree? And if you have watched Satan Tango, we did, because we didn't have Zona Bellatar. Did you like it? Yes. Yes. Keep we, up the great liked, works, Elias. We both liked Satan Tango. Uh, I, so I watched it spread over three days, which is probably not the ideal way to watch it. Because I think Tara would say, I would rather you watch it over an evening. You be immersed in mm -hmm. it. And hopefully I would like to one day. I do remember like 10 years ago. I missed it. Yeah, the light box did it, right? Yeah, well, I, and I also remember I happened to be in New York. Yes. Lincoln Center was showing it. And I was I was thinking of doing it, but, but they were like, yeah, two bathroom breaks and a dinner break. And I thought, I don't know if I have this in me today. Mm. But I mean, I think what I didn't realize at the time is, Satan Tango is actually quite a pleasurable experience. It's a funny experience, you, too. Yeah, if you let it be. I mean, the fact that, like, yeah, you have to understand that it is actually, it looks like it's going to be this miserable thing, but it is actually funny. Yeah, and Bellatar, the way he shoots in these ridiculously long tracking shots, as it goes on, it's almost like, and I feel like I'm using this analogy that I've used before, like Bob with the rake. Where, like, the longer it goes, the more little details you're noticing. Totally. The funnier it gets. I mean, the whole, uh, is it hour three, where it's that big fact guy, like, wandering from one place to another. Yeah, and that's early on, I feel. Yeah. And, like, falling asleep and not being able to get back up. I mean, yeah, like, if, if, you're, if you're willing to, to, and, like, the end of the movie, once you get to the end of the movie, which is basically the burn after reading ending. Mm. You know, I don't think that's a spoiler. No. And I, this I think is an unspoilable movie that this listener, he's got with a friend. So you can like compare notes and be like, wow, did you believe he did this or that? So I, it's a good way to go watch it. I also think, and maybe you'll disagree, you or the listener, that a movie like that feels shorter to me than like a bad two and a half hour movie does. I absolutely agree. Because like the pace, it's so uncompromising. It, it's so committed to its pace that you sort of get hypnotized in mm. it. Yeah. If it's playing, go see it, which 
which I think was the decision we reached as well when we talked about it the last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, our next letter is from Andrew B. And he goes, hey guys, just listen to episode 200 you did on Godzilla. Great work, by the way. You even made the bad film seems like they might also be fun. There's no bad There's Godzilla films. There's no bad Godzilla films. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I've read that Akira Kurosawa, well, except for uh, Gino. The uh, oh, Roland Emmerich one. Yeah, 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 that's Godzilla name only. Anyway, I've read that Akira Kurosawa wanted to direct a Godzilla film, but Toho basically told him to buzz off because they knew it would be too expensive. I haven't heard of this. Yeah, I've never heard Kurosawa that Kurosawa wanted to do one. I mean, Kurosawa's best friend, Ishiro Honda, mm-hmm. directed a ton of them. Yeah, because Ishiro Honda was his like second unit director on stuff like Stray Dog. And, and like, uh, Ron. Yeah, even like later on, they got back together and they did a yeah. whole bunch of projects. In fact, I think uh, Ishiro Honda directed one or two segments of Dreams. Mm-hmm, he did. Um, I'm curious what you think a Godzilla film by Kurosawa would look like. Would it be three hours long? Would it end with Toshiro Mifune dressed in nothing except a thong being grown to giant size and wrestling with Godzilla? Maybe late period uh, Akira Kurosawa. Would it be fun? My guess is no. Or would it be incredibly self-important and dull? I'm sure no matter what, it would be impressive, but I understand Toho's hesitance, and I say that as an outright Kurosawa simp. Curious what you guys think. All the best and keep up the good work. Well, first of all, I actually don't think it would have been self-important and dull because watch the Kurosawa movies. I mean, they're fun. I mean, good God, high and low, mm-hmm. you know, Stray Dog or even like in his late period when he's doing the big blockbuster. Kagamusha. They're I so mean, visually inventive and like, you know, just a joy to those, watch. Those movies move. Yeah. So and they look great. I Frankly, I think a Kurosawa Godzilla movie just on a technical level, I mean, nobody knew how to compose a frame like Kurosawa. I would have loved to see Kurosawa do a Godzilla fight scene. And if Kurosawa got to make a Godzilla film, it would be in such a different mode than all the other journeymen who directed them. And like, all right, let's go through the motions. Like you say, will it be dull? Some of those Godzilla movies, you can't get more dull than them. So <laughs> yeah, no, like... please watch High and Low and then watch, I don't know, Godzilla versus the Sea Monster and tell me which is dull. <laughs> oh, I like Godzilla versus the Sea Monster. That's why they go to the island and that's the one where... The Godzilla, first hour of it is Godzilla a asked like King Kong the entire time because it was originally a King Kong script. Okay, well, maybe I should watch it again. It's been a while. I watched one of the 90s Godzilla movies where they just stand there and shoot energy beams. I'm <laughs> curious where this anecdote is from and like at what period Kurosawa wanted to direct a Godzilla film. I mean, if, if it's true that he wanted to do one, I know why why he didn't. It's probably because they want a journeyman to make yeah, those movies. They want someone they can boss around. They could not boss around Kurosawa. Yeah. But Kurosawa probably wanted to do it in the context of he had some career problems at some point. And- yeah. If he did a big commercial hit, maybe that would reflect better on him to then be able to do his own project. He tried to commit suicide at one point, so, yeah. you know, he had a lot of difficulty in his career. I'd love to see him do a 70s Godzilla movie. Oh, that'd be like, <laughs> he takes over in between two, uh, two John, John Bakuda. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a director we need to do an episode on. I would love to do a John Fukuda episode because he's like the ultimate Japanese journeyman of that time. Mm-hmm. He did Godzilla movies, yeah, but he did all those salaryman comedies, you know, just like spy movies. Can we see that style in his other films? We won't. Yeah. We won't, but what? You know what? I say we will. Okay, maybe we will, but we'll- Because I feel like I can watch one of his films and I I can go, that's Fukuda right there, just based on the way that he shoots. Well, I def- Okay, actually, you're selling me on this because I know a John Fukuda Godzilla movie when I see one. Like the jazzy scores. uh, The handheld during the fight scenes. But is that Fukuda doing that or is that the second unit director? Well, no, you know what? His... All I know is when when Honda came back for Terror of Mechagodzilla, yeah, it looks like, like a Honda movie again. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, lots to consider there. 
maybe uh, in regards to a certain Godzilla weekend we'll be having coming up. Because I think we're seeing a bunch of Fukuda films too, right? Uh, I can't remember. Well, we're seeing Megalon at least. Yes. And we're seeing Terror of Mechagodzilla, the last Honda one as well. And anyway, Mahoning Drive-In, check it out, Godzilla-thon. Thank you very much for that letter, and we wish we could see that movie. There's more Japanese Godzilla films coming up, and the next one is from kind of like a journeyman, because they don't want to, you know, go down the path of like Kiriaki Anno doing more of them. And so it's like, oh, well, I guess we're getting back to the Godzilla roots, but give me one a year then. <laughs> like, let, let directors kind of run wild with it. That, that's what I'm interested in. I agree. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. That's importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com in case Justin spoke too quickly. Yes. Uh, we're bored want? here. We want to get we want to get through it. Will's <laughs> <laughs> very tired. It's uh, later than we usually record. I'm so tired. <laughs> he keeps yawning, causing me to yawn. Yeah. Uh, on an episode that's supposed to be the most high-octane filmmaker there is. Well, I bet George Miller suffered jet lag in his life. (laughs) And next week, we've done a lot of directors recently, so we're finally going to do an actor. Mr. Paul Hogan. Wait, no, wait, I'm getting a note. That's not what we're (laughs) We're not doing Paul Hogan. No, we will be doing Willem Dafoe, the Green Goblin himself. That's right. Because, I mean, I think he's one of the best actors alive. Mm. One of the most, I mean, look at that filmography. I mean, somebody He's who, making choices in that. I mean, it, it's, it's, I've never seen a career like this. Somebody who is in like Marvel, like Spider-Man movies and is also making like, like Abel Ferreira's home movies now. And the thing about like the Spider-Man movies is he loved being the Green Goblin. When he's wearing that suit, that's Defoe in that suit. Yeah. He's in the most commercial stuff. He's in Aquaman, but he's also in... And like he has his pet auteurs like Lars von Trier and Paul Schrader, like even in their fallow years, even when Paul Schrader is making like Adam Resurrected, he's working with him. And then he's also making these kind of like upper middle brow, like prestige art house hits like at Eternity's Gate or the Florida Project. Like he covered great in the he, Florida. Oscar nominated. I, I love him in the Florida Project. He's he covers the waterfront. You know, he's in Martin Scorsese movies. I mean, you know, he's one of those actors that is constantly working, but he also has good taste that like the things that he does isn't just like, yep, well, whatever you want me to do, I'll answer the phone and I'll go. And when he does poppy stuff, you don't sense him condescending to it like so we we may discuss Boondock Saints because yes. because let's face it he throws himself into Boondock Saints absolutely he does and not fall in that movie out we are absolutely we have to watch uh, Light Sleeper get that Schrader in. yes please probably Last Temptation of Christ because that's one of his like big major roles if you can find time for Tommaso yeah I'm gonna watch Tommaso. I think it's interesting and I suggested Body of Evidence not a very well liked film but one that Willem Dafoe stars in. Arguably in the prime of his career. One last thing I want to say about Willem Dafoe. His real name, his legal name, his birth name is William. Is it? Don't you just want to punch him in the face <laughs> when you hear that? <laughs> well, I've been calling him William all these years anyway, so I'm good. <laughs> so Willem Dafoe, coming next. So until then, my name's Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank some of our new patrons, who include Martin Law, Luke Gordonier, Amy Butterfield, Abe Braun, Nathan Duckworth, and Christopher Abernathy. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not do it without you. So Justin and I are going to Danvers, Massachusetts uh, in a couple days. We're going uh, We're going to Matt Farley's annual Moturn Extravaganza. I'm so excited about it because it's going to be the biggest one ever, undeniably. 
and the just the surreal fact that they will be premiering two new feature films back to back is wild to me. Okay, now I'm going to do the thing that 99% of listeners don't need, but you never know whose first episode, whose first episode. This could be someone's first episode. Matt Farley is a guy who lives in Danvers, Massachusetts, who's the most prolific songwriter of all time. He's written 23,000 songs. His most popular one is called The Poop Song. Mm-hmm. He makes a living on people clicking on his songs on Spotify. He also makes, with his friend Charlie Roxburgh, these backyard movies feature films in co- uh, co-starring his friends and co-workers and relatives, movies like Don't Let the River Beast Get You that I that we think are great. So great that we even wrote a book about them. And Matt Farley is also a songwriter and singer, and he has multiple bands with his friends, and he'll also be doing that at that day. So it's not only two feature films, which would be worth it just to go. It's also a concert of five hours of Matt Farley, and I'm here announcing it today, that I will be filming and making into a concert film. Can you believe that? We got Shine a Light 2 is coming out. And uh, I wanted to ask Will, like, what makes a good concert film in your opinion? Well, it's interesting because, so Shine a Light, the Martin Scorsese one. Bad movie. Bad movie. Probably one of Martin Scorsese's worst things he's ever done. The, o- the <laughs> only documentaries that he has his name on that it's like, did you really direct this, Marty? The only reason I didn't say Shine a Light is his worst movie is because he's made two different things with Fran Lebowitz. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but Shine a Light, you know, it's technically perfect. Mm-hmm. He's got, a, you know, 25 cameramen, including Albert Mazels. He can spot... He, he was there? Albert wow. Mazels, you can spot him in the crowd with a camera. He's he's filming it. Technically perfect, edited, you know, beautifully. And it's all selling you a lie. Mm-hmm. It's selling you, like, these guys are still good. <laughs> They're still cool. And, and we are matching the energy of this performance. Mm. And I'm sorry, the Rolling Stones, in whatatever year that was made, suck. Yes, they They're, do. They're lame. Undeniably. Yeah. It, Can you imagine going to see that in, like, IMAX when it opened? <laughs> but it's... I, I did. I did see it in IMAX when it opened. <laughs> and you were like... It was like seeing the Rolling Stones in the pro. I remember the experience very well, actually, because for about 30 minutes, I was like, I like these songs. And the movie's two hours. And like <laughs> towards the end, oh, sorry, by halfway, I was like, these songs kind of sound all the same. But I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe I only like these guys in small doses. So like, what are the great concert films? You got Talking Heads, the Jonathan Demi movie, Stop Making Sense. Yeah. I mean, what's amazing about that one is... Like, I feel like it really captures something. It captures this band that, like, at, at this moment of explosion, there's this energy. I mean, the burning down the house number there, everyone's having so much fun. But also, I watch that movie, and I also think, I can see why this band broke up eventually. Mm-hmm. You've got this guy, David Byrne, in the it's middle. It's all about him. It's all about him. He's this hyper genius, like, incredible guy. How can this sustain itself? But here's this wonderful night where everything is perfect. And that film is also like its main stylistic conceit that people like to be like, did you notice they never showed the crowd until the end? Yeah. That's the main thing of like, why has the energy in your present as if you're there with them? But you know, it's funny. D.A. Pennebaker's David Bowie movie, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, that concert film, it's shot really badly. Mm -hmm. Like, and yet, I mean, it's so much better than Shine a Light. Which is shot perfectly. Because, like, what makes a good concert film? Is it, like, feeling that you're present there and how you achieve that? Or is it creating a kind of cutting pattern that makes it consistent and you don't get bored watching it? Well, I think all of that is important. But Mm -hmm. I also think a lot depends on the concert itself. You have to capture something authentic. Mm -hmm. Like, 
Ziggy Stardust, you know, you're seeing David Bowie at at his peak. And, you know, the fact that you're in the the fact that it's filmed badly in a weird way adds to it because it's sort of it creates this experience of like, oh, you've traveled back in time and you're kind of getting a shitty view of David Bowie at his peak. This is what it felt like in the room. Because usually when I think of concert films, I think of them in the context of, oh, we're just capturing this performance and it's for the fans. Mm -hmm. We want to kind of like relive that moment. Ones that kind of, you know, rise above that, there's probably lots that I don't know, but it's like the obvious ones. Stop making sense. Uh, Anything that Prince had to do, because mostly he's just such a big performer. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how you film him because it will be incredibly dynamic. Well, speaking of the Rolling Stones, I mean, Cocksucker Blues, that documentary, which isn't really a concert film. It's mostly a behind the scenes documentary. Which uh, maybe this Moturn one will have an element of that as well. (laughs) This will be the Cocksucker Blues. uh, (laughs) Matt Matt Fallon is like, it's banned. It's banned. This could never get out. It was all staged. None of that was real. (laughs) Uh, You made the groupies do those things. (laughs) (laughs) No, I want... I want oh yeah I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my sympathy of the for the devil of like matt farley <laughs> of him like writing a song in 90 minutes well except it'll be 30 seconds yeah you're you got it <laughs> yeah, yeah it'd be a short film yeah and you would also intercut it as godard did with like yeah. scenes of revolution <laughs> yeah through salem massachusetts <laughs> yeah so but anyway like cocksucker blues it has all that behind the scenes stuff and then you kind of get the sense that the stones you know, they're all high. They're all like they spent all night oh, just yeah. like fucking their dicks off. And then, you know, they, they they roll up. They wander on a stage and do a scorching performance of Jumpin' Jack Flash. You know, sweat and semen just like <laughs> dripping off them. You know, we, you know, the, the audience is so electric. Like people are trying to run up onto the stage. There's just this incredible energy in the room. And then they then they stagger off and do more sex and drugs and then stagger back. And all of a sudden they're in a new city and like, oh, what city is this? I don't know. Let's do the song again. And like, I don't know that. I hope I won't be doing this when I'm 70 years old. <laughs> yeah. Well, our, oh, well, when they're in shine a light, it's like, OK, our dressing rooms are very clean. Mm-hmm. And we've got we've got Mick Jagger has not spoken to Keith Richards in 10 years, but yeah. they performed. And I, and I only want the red M&Ms in the bowl. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Bill Clinton is coming out to introduce us. Oh, if I could only capture a moment as perfect as Kevin Costner uh, dissing Madonna in her <laughs> Truth or Dare uh, concert film. I've never seen that. I've seen that clip, obviously. But yeah, I've never seen it. <laughs> movies all the time where we yeah. do laser blood. What is the one that, isn't it Paul McCartney and Bill Clinton or something oh, like that? Okay, that's my favorite. That's my favorite documentary ever. It's <laughs> It's an Albert Maisel's film, actually. Yeah. It's called The Love We Make, and it's Paul McCartney preparing for the concert he did for, for like, 9-11. yeah. Yeah, the benefit concert. And you get the sense of what it must be like to... Cause he, be, to, to be um, Paul McCartney. To be the most famous, the highest-ranking man in the world, because people like ex-presidents are coming in are in awe of this man. Paul McCartney, because of, like, five songs he's written, has become the highest-ranking man in the world. And when he goes out on the streets, people are weeping when they see him. And he's just like, eh. <laughs> yeah. And But then also, it's like, you can't live like that for 50 years and not become a little crazy. Mm-hmm. And the documentary captures that as well. What is that Bill Clinton scene, though, where like, he like comes in, he's like, oh, Paul. Paul. Well, Bill Clinton comes in and does the same joke to three people. Yes, that's what it is. Like, like you know what they say about us 60s guys? You know, we were a little crazy, but we sure hung on. <laughs> and everybody laughs. And he does it three times. Well, actually, what I love in that documentary is Paul McCartney's going to unveil his new song Freedom which is one of the worst Freedom. one of the worst songs ever 
written by anyone. He's playing it to like, you know, Jim Carrey or Harrison Ford or whoever, and they just nod. It's like, what are you going to do? Tell, tell Paul McCullough, tell, tell a Beatle that his song sucks? No, you're just going to assume, yeah, he knows what he's doing. But then he plays a Derek Clapton who is one of the few people who comes close to ranking with him. Yeah. And Eric Clapton's visibly not impressed. And you see Paul be like, oh, well, you know, when you when you do it like that, like Paul is suddenly on the defensive, yeah, explaining Clapton. why it's going to work. And Eric Clapton just stares at him blankly. I mean, yeah, the love we make, if you can make anything, something that approaches how good that movie I is. Mean, this documentary uh, or this concert film is going to be better than all of those. <laughs> Last Wall, love you make. Fuck that shit. Yeah. <laughs>